Hey guys, girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. And I'm your host, Roman Segal. In today's episode, we have an absolute cracking guest for you, none other than uh, Kendall Berlin O'Connell, who is the CEO and president of Mass Bio. I'm pretty sure many of you will know of Mass Bio or interacted with that firm at some point in the last 10 to 15 years or so. And Kendall very much epitomizes what the association is all about. So you're in for a real, real treat today. And uh, for background, Kendall leads the strategic direction uh, for the organization and drives policy advocacy for the industry to ensure Massachusetts life science companies have the best environment possible to research, develop, manufacture, and commercialize breakthrough therapies and cures for people all over the world. Pursuing innovation and delivering for members are the hallmarks of Kendall's more than 15 years at MassBio, including the launch of several multi-year initiatives focusing on uh, realizing a diverse and equitable life sciences industry, supporting the growth and sustainability of the industry through Massachusetts, and providing the resources and solutions to companies across the industry value chain. A lawyer by trade, she has earned a spot on the Boston Business Journal's 2023 Power 50. Movement Makers list is ranked at number 33 on Boston Magazine's uh, list of the 150 most influential Bostonians. Uh, 2022 recipient of the Cambridge Chamber of Commerce Inspire Awards recognizing outstanding female leaders in the Cambridge community. A 2022 Boston Power Player, as named by Axios. A 2021 Executive Fellow in the inaugural class of the Civic Action Project Collaborative. And a 2019 Boston Business Journal 40 Under 40 Honoree, which acknowledges uh, the leader's impact on the industry. Wow, that is quite the mouthful, but it hopefully gives you some insight into what you're about to experience today. Heck of a lot of energy, great story. Um, I'm pretty sure you'll want to share this episode with a colleague and I know you're going to like it, so you may as well give us a five-star rating now. Enjoy. Hey, Kendall, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Well, I'm very excited. You know, having spent uh, several years living in Boston, uh, my experience of being part of that ecosystem in particular attending the mass bio events was uh was great and so having you on the show is a, is a real honor for me and uh you know uh, fantastic for our audience to get a bit of insight into mass bio but also a bit of insight into you and your background so Kendall, talk to us about your journey from you know from college to where you got today because you've taken a, a few different steps along the way and ultimately to, to ending up at, at Mass Bio, but I'd love you to tell kind of the story of your kind of rise to, to the fantastic role that you you do at Mass Bio. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think my story is probably similar to many people. It certainly wasn't linear. And I think if you had asked me when I was in college, if I would be the CEO of a biotech trade organization, my answer would have been no. But I couldn't be, you know, more thankful and and just appreciative of being in this role. So, you know, when I was in college, I always had visions of going to law school, and I just sort of saw myself as in the future as a practicing attorney. Um, and, and I did go to law school. I went, um, I went to college in Connecticut, but I came back here to Boston to go to law school, Suffolk Law, 
And, um, you know, you know, like anything, when you're in those different academic journeys, you're sort of not sure where you want to go, but you're going to like let that path lead you in an area. And when I graduated from law school, I was offered a position at an estate planning and elder law firm. And there's something to be said for getting a job offer before you sit for the bar. So the answer was yes, I'll give that area of law a whirl. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't certainly didn't start law school thinking, geez, I can't wait to be an estate planning attorney. Um, <laughs> but, you know, had law school loans to pay and OK, I've got now a law degree. Let's do this. Um, and so I did. I went to a, a boutique firm and I really specialized in um, elder law. And after a couple of years, it was clear to me that this is not the career that I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, when I was in law school, I had clerked in some employment law positions, and I thought, oh, geez, I'm going to get back into that. Um, but through networking, um, at an event, the CEO of MassBio said that he was looking for somebody, a lawyer, to run um, our what was our purchasing consortium at the time. He said, you should apply for that job. So I did, and I came in an interview with him, and, and this was back in 2008, right? And so really sort of the start of the incredible growth that the life science industry has experienced here in Massachusetts. And he looked at me and he said, take this job. By the way, I literally Googled biotechnology to come in for that interview. Like I did not know about life sciences. I did not know about bi biotech. And he said, take this job. This is an incredible industry. We're transforming, saving the lives of patients. And there's no better place in the world for it than Massachusetts. You got to be part of this. So I thought, okay, how can I say no to that? Um, and I took that risk. And my first day at MassBio, I love telling this story because I think it's a, a sort of a testament to believing in yourself. Um, there was a woman who had been at MassBio who was hired to run the purchasing consortium and seasoned. She'd been in the industry for 25 plus years. And looked at me and said, I don't know why they hired you. You're not from industry. You're not the right person for this job. Here's a binder with what you'll need to know, but you probably won't be here that long. <laughs> and so that started my journey at Mass Bio. <laughs> what a welcome. What a really warm, warm welcome to the organization. And just let's pause at your story there, because obviously that was 15 years ago. And uh, and obviously we'll, we'll get into the, the growth then. As you, as you reflect back, and you said it's something interesting right at the start, you know, your path was not linear and you never expected uh, to to kind of get into the, the life science sector. Did you did did you have a feeling in 2008 for the life science space within Massachusetts as in, oh, this is, this is going to be a good place to invest in? And we'll, we'll get into how Mass became such a, a real powerhouse globally, but did you have any sense of what the potential was for particularly for Cambridge and Boston at that time? Or was it just right time, right place? I really didn't, right? It was definitely right time, right place. And it's funny when you think about, I mean, it's still something I struggle a little bit with in this role. And when you think about broadly the community understanding the role that Massachusetts plays in globally in life sciences and the, and the impact that we have on patients around the globe, I still don't think that generally the community understands this. And where I'm sitting 
it is um, referred to, right? I'm in Kendall Square right now. That's where our office is. And I'm in what is referred to as the most innovative square mile on the planet. So if certainly in 2008, I did not appreciate that. And I think a lot of the local community still doesn't understand how much of an outsized role Massachusetts has in bringing life-changing solutions to patients. Oh, absolutely. Could not agree more. And it's funny because that's exactly where our office at Ramarding is in in Kendall Square in Cambridge at the, the CIC there. And um, you know, and it's funny, you know, as an outsider, when I first came to to Boston, there's an energy about that part of which I, I just found infectious, I have to say. There is a certain energy in that part of the world that is it makes you want to just be part of it. It makes you want to thrive and it is a phenomenal place, and uh, and it it turns out your name as well, as well as it, I mean I have to just point out the obvious, but I mean what are the chances of Kendall Square working in Kendall Square when that's I, your? <laughs> I get that a lot, and I have to tell you, there my team on my fifteenth anniversary at MassBio, they gave me this awesome picture, and I wish you could see it, but it is a picture of Kendall Square from the eighties, and a picture the same vantage point of Kendall Square now. And it truly sort of represents the growth that this ecosystem has experienced visually. And then they called it Kendall Square, but spelt the way I spell Kendall. So it was very sweet. Very cool. And I'll tell you what, let's continue. Before we go back to your, I suppose, progress within MassBio, let's stick to that point there in terms of that, that, I suppose, progress from the 80s to now. You know, for many of us... um, so many of our listeners that would probably have only visited that part of the world for events or to see clients. Do you mind painting a picture of how just how Massachusetts and in particular Cambridge and Boston became this unbelievable kind of cluster that punches well above its weight, as 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 you said before? Like what like how did that come about? Because, you know, I look around the world now and you know, there are so many places, particularly in North America, trying to replicate what you guys have done um but no one probably asked how did it happen in the first place so i'd love you to just share your i suppose any insights on like how that became what it became absolutely i love telling this story and i usually when i tell this story i start with that picture i was just talking about because that's a way to visualize it but basically in in clusters again like you had just mentioned all around the country and and, and internationally come here and they said how can we replicate what you have and there's some key ingredients that we can point to, but there's some that you just never can replicate. And, and it goes to what you talked about, about the energy here, and, and I'll get to that. But certainly we have the world-class academic institutions right here, right, in this very sort of close proximity, Harvard, MIT, the UMass system, BU, Northeastern. I mean, the list goes on. We have over 130 academic institutions here in Massachusetts. And so that's sort of where it starts. And then think about our hospitals. We have best-in-class hospitals here, right? Um, again, all within a, a mile, a couple miles of each other. And what we were seeing is these biotechs spin out of these institutions, right? And, and that was really the start of it. But when you think about how we got to be the successful cluster, there's this collaboration that we talk about, and it's between industry, government, and academia, right? So we've got all of these academic institutions. We've got these best-in-class hospitals. And 
we have over right now we have over a thousand biotechs here in massachusetts um and so our partners in government understood that we had some of these key ingredients for success and so in back in 2008 actually when i started here um the governor at the time said we're going to make a huge investment in life sciences in Massachusetts. We're going to put that flag in the sand and say, we're betting on this industry. And so they created what's called the Life Science Initiative. And that was a 10-year billion dollar investment into this industry. And that money went towards um, infrastructure, right? So within the UMass system, um, within some cities and towns that could have been ideal locations for life sciences. Um, it went towards tax incentives so we could start to actively recruit companies here to Massachusetts. It went to some er, um, funding of early stage companies. And when you look at that, that was really the inflection point for so much of the success that the industry has experienced since then. Um, and then in 2018, um, our the next um, administration, continued to bet on this industry and reauthorize the life, set, uh, life science initiative for a second iteration. And our current administration announced at the Bio-International Convention in June her intent to reauthorize for a third version. And so that is really the key to success is having all of these stakeholders aligned with a vision of ensuring we have all the ingredients to succeed in life sciences. And so because of this, we've got all of those biotechs. We knew that we've been able to recruit 18 of the top 20 biopharma to have a physical presence here. That's huge, right? And then because of that, we had huge movement from the VC community to have a, their presence here, right? And and when you we've grown from an employment perspective, right? We grew by 110% during that time period, just in biopharma space. The impacts have been really substantial, mostly for the patients, right? Around the globe, Massachusetts makes up about 15% of the drug development pipeline nationally and 7% of it globally. Think about that, right? We are a small state of about 7 million people. But our impact is global and so far reaching. That's incredible. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. And I think if, um, I know you guys all have been uh, part of the um, a report that came out recently, the funding and pipeline report that I came across. And there was, a, there was a statistic in there, and I can't quite pull it up, of how Massachusetts compares to countries. And I'm sure I read something around comparing the, to, to China is not, is not, is, is, effectively it punches above its weight versus the entirety of China or similar to China, which is, I might have got that wrong, but I was remember, I read that last week and thought that was just, it really hit home for me just how much this part of the world punches above its weight in drug development. Absolutely. that You're right, right? We are, what we're bringing to the table compares with entire countries, right? And, and so that's what an outsized role we have. And, and when you mentioned that energy that you feel here, I want to talk about that for a minute because it is something that you really can't replicate anywhere in the world. Because we've done this, when you think about Cambridge and Boston, it, it's so dense in such a in such a tight area that 
actually the Globe recently, the Boston Globe recently did a piece on this. It, it was titled The Bump Factor, I believe. And it's because in Kendall Square, I can walk out of my office and go grab a coffee down the street. And while I'm doing that, I can run into small biotech CEOs. I can run into big VCs. I can run into executives at big pharma. I can run into a bench scientist, right? All just grabbing coffee. These are organic collisions that happen. And I don't think there's any other place in the world where you can replicate that. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And you might even bump into me, Kendall. You never know. I that's... hope I bump into you. That would be like the highlight <laughs> of my day. <laughs> that is the potential. Well, well, thanks for giving us that. Um, you know, I think for many of our listeners, they'll, they'll, they will know, every single listener will know that, you know, Massachusetts is in one of the real powerhouses globally. But I think it was really interesting to hear that kind of backstory. And I love what you said about the kind of stakeholder alignment. Um, and certainly, you know, living there, you really you really feel the sense of hospitals and academic institutions are literally everywhere. That was something I felt I could not get ahead. I could not get my head. I remember marathon training for the Chicago Marathon in Boston. And I'd go running for like, say, 15, 20 miles. And in that time, I would probably run next to about 10 to 15 different campuses. It wasn't like, you know, from from you know down from J- Jamaica playing up to Cambridge and then back and around a few different places it was incredible the just the amount of colleges there and the amount of hospitals so you really feel it and that energy piece I could not could not agree more and so thanks for thanks for sharing that let's let's go back to your personal story then so so there you are with the the really warm welcome <laughs> in 2008 from your colleague um talk us through I've got two questions actually one I'd love you just to talk through that journey of the, you know that kind of fifteen years to to get to where you are today at MassBio, but would as you reflect back, did you ever think in two thousand eight you'd still be there in fifteen years? <laughs> no, that's the quick answer. I, I mean, <laughs> certainly not. And I think the journey has been so interesting. And immediately, I knew that MassBio, and back then actually it was the MBC, uh, was a special place because we were involved in so many aspects of not just life sciences, but sort of business in Massachusetts. And every day sort of brought something different to the table because we're also a nonprofit. So when I started, my role was to run our purchasing consortium. Um, We run the largest life science purchasing consortium in the country. And when you think about MassBio and where it started back in 1985, we were the first biotechnology trade organization in the world. Um, We started for two reasons. And one was to educate city councilors on what biotechnology was at the time in Cambridge. And the other was a few companies, Genzyme, Biogen, Genetics Institute, a few others got together and thought, we can if we aggregate our spending power, we can focus, we can put more of that money into science. And those are still two very core focus areas of our organization today. But when I started, it was to run the purchasing consortium. And I when I I just did a listening tour when I when I came here. I wanted to understand what did that mean to our member companies and what did they like about it and what would they like to see? And it quickly became clear that this was really important to these companies. They were saving an immense amount of money and and they were channeling that money back into their science. And within six months of me starting here, um, because I was a lawyer, 
Uh, I And because I wasn't from industry, I think that was really to my advantage. I was able to negotiate um, our contract that we have today uh, with Thermo Fisher. We had uh, a competing vendor at the time who had the agreement for 25 years. And um, we were their second largest global customer at the time. And I was able to negotiate um, that agreement. It was worth $45 million at the time. And that agreement now um, we just signed a ten-year extension. It's worth four billion dollars. Wow! Yeah, and just so, just so I understand the the mechanics of that, when you talk about purchasing, are you effectively you're representing X amount of bi- like biotech companies or member companies, and as such, they are able to benefit from the buying power of the collective. Exactly. Uh, I suppose consortium. So you know, if something, and what, what are they buying? Like so for, so for Thermo, for example, whether it be lab instrument, in, instrumentation equipment, it could be finished dosage uh, kind of containers. I'm guessing it's a huge variety of stuff, but if they're buying through Mass Bio, they're effectively getting a saving for being part of the part of the organization. That's exactly right. So our, a small startup can essentially get the same pricing as a large pharma company, right? And that in in our agreements are on areas we think about what does a startup need to get going? And then those are the areas that we go to negotiate. So lab supplies and equipment, specialty gases, hazardous and biomedical waste removal, those type of things that are essential to the research and development that that company is doing. Okay, understood. And so you renegotiate this contract, and which obviously has become. And then my guess is then did almost. I feel like once you did that work, some people didn't like you because you were coming in and changing things. They're like, "Well, who's exactly right?" <laughs> but then other people are like, "Well, hang on a second. You know, this young gun is actually cre- you know, creating some value and getting things done. What was the sentiment? Was it like, who the heck does she think she is? So, or something more positive? It was definitely a mixed bag. I had a lot of um, voicemails on my phone of folks that were not very pleased with me for changing it. But I also, just like you mentioned, I had some people to say, wow, she came in here and I didn't expect that from her. And the value that that agreement has brought to not only mass bio but to our community has been incredible over the years um but i think it was a moment for me to prove myself a little bit right you're right i wasn't from this industry maybe i shouldn't be here on paper but i am the kind of person that will roll my sleeves up i'll do the appropriate due diligence and understand learn and I also, I'm not afraid to take a risk. And I think that was really, that started my journey within Mass Bio. All of those sort of um, attributes that I have have continued to be themes throughout my career here. It's interesting because, you know, my brother's a lawyer and you you don't strike me as, like that, that risk-taking part of you actually feels more entrepreneurial than it does like a, an attorney to me. I think that's right. I think that's why I quickly knew that being a practicing attorney <laughs> it's not the, was really not for me. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, as you, I say, you know, Kendall's much more interesting than my brother. I'm not saying that. But, and what, I know we'll, we'll, we'll pause that for a minute in terms of whether or not. I'm just I'm interested to know, like, where does that piece come from? Like, is that, are your parents 
business owners? Like, is there something in the family or, you know, were you a family of lawyers or whatever? Was there anything in your DNA which suggested that kind of risk-taking piece was was ever there? Or is that just something that you've almost nurtured along the way? So no, my family, my dad is a retired state trooper and my mom was an esthetician. And so so not, not coming from that. Okay, okay. this minded. Um, I no, know, state troopers. State troopers pretty risky business. That is risky business in a different way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think I'm just hyper competitive. Yeah. And I was a D1 athlete. Um, I ran track, and it's just sort of in me. And I just love, I love being an underdog. I love po- proving people wrong. I love having really sort of big vision, but I'm also very focused on the execution. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. You, you, you strike me as being very scrappy in, in the Super scrappy. In, That's in the, in the most complimentary way in that, like proving people rolling. Co- and I'm in the, the uh, I suppose the, the competitive sport nature that you mentioned there is definitely going to be kind of will to win and make an impact and make things happen and add value. So, so that's great. So you've you've ruffled some feathers and you know made an impact. And then where, where does your journey go from from there? Yeah. So um, I did that. I oversaw our purchasing consortium for a number of years, and then I um, became vice president of membership in purchasing and. At the time, I actually was pregnant with my son, my first child, and I was I asked for the opportunity. I'm, I'm like, I want more. And there was some turnover uh, within the organization. And and I remember some people were like, but you're going to be having your first baby like this feels like a lot. And I'm like, no, I this I want this. Um and so that was the sort of next stage of my career here. And then I became the chief operating officer um, a couple of years later. And, you know, that was interesting because we had a, a board chair that was coming into his his role, his two-year term. And he actually uh, asked me to come to his office for a meeting. And he's like, I would like you to be the CEO of this the COO of this organization. And that was a really important moment for me because I don't know if I saw that for me, right? And so I think it's a good moment of self-reflection for all of us as we advance in our career to continue to go out of your way to make opportunities for people. Having someone see something for you that you might not see for yourself can change the whole trajectory of that person's career. And, and that is what happened. And so I moved into that COO role and we had we were really sort of a burgeoning organization at that point. We'd grown a lot and we had we were taking on a bunch of things. We were starting to do our 2025 strategic report at the time, right? So that I guess this was 2018. We were moving into a new space. Um, we were doing a report on digital health. And so I was overseeing all of these initiatives and but the cool thing about all of that before is there was never a dull moment like sometimes i was running the purchasing consortium and negotiating contracts 
Sometimes I was selling membership to somebody and, and that's storytelling, right? You don't have to really sell membership. It's you should be part of this community because. And then as I got into the COO role, I was doing HR stuff. I was, um, you know, managing teams and every day was really exciting. And at the same time, MassBet was playing a huge role in supporting companies and growing the industry here in Massachusetts. And so it's funny to think that my career path here sort of was uh, on running in parallel to much of the growth of the industry here in Massachusetts, right? We were on that same timeline. Yeah, the, it, it is incredible the kind of parallels from that that 15 years or so where, um, you know, going back to you, maybe you were in the right place at the right time back in 2008, but you took a risk and you probably had to change things internally uh, and kind of you know make an impact and not everyone would have taken the same risk. Um, and I wanted to kind of underline something you said. You know, you talked about the the board chair, and isn't isn't the the power of someone believing in you so so powerful, right? Like I've had that in my career where people have, yes, yeah, was you know, lit a path path for me ahead that I would never have envisaged myself. Like, really, you believe I can I could do that? Like, and and it sounds to me that you know, as it, impressive as it your growth has been, having that conversation that hey, I think you could do this, probably made you feel. 50 foot tall and give you that that uh that confidence to do the types of things that you've done at must buy definitely it opened up a door that i didn't know i wanted to open right and so it's something now that when i get to be in this ceo ceo role i'm i make sure i do for other people yeah um i think one of the things i'm really good at is sort of seeing seeing the the strong um, skill sets in people and creating roles around them. And because I'm at a nonprofit, right, we're a standalone nonprofit, we can be nimble and I can do that. So I can create a, a position that will highlight somebody's skill set versus saying, oh, okay, they might not be right for this role. We should move on. No, look at they could thrive if this was the role. And I've done that over and over again in my career here. And it's made for some long-term, really loyal, fantastic members of the team. Yeah, I, I can believe that. And that's actually led me to a question I was going to ask you. And I suppose this comes from a place of I've seen I've seen individuals in organize even in my own organizations, actually, I've seen individuals kind of rise up the ranks like you have and kind of uh, zigzag and navigate your way from uh, you know, relatively low, lowish role or mid-level role, right to the right to the top, and in in one sense, that's fantastic because you know how the sausage is made, right? You know how you will know how that organization works better than virtually anyone else in the world, which is which is fantastic. But in making that journey, you then get in that position, which I've seen some people struggle with, which is, hey, you're now managing and leading the team that once you reported into and your you know counterpart and, and all that kind of stuff so how have you found that piece of it which is you know as you've as you've moved up the ranks like has there been a little bit of you know kind of i don't know what the right word is but have you had to really kind of um soften your approach in areas have you had to really you know deal with these things head on because i imagine at times it could be probably a bit awkward if you're someone's now reporting into you and they used to be your boss a few years ago. If, if you kind of understand where, where, I'm, where I'm coming from. I definitely do. I think that's a great question. And I think, yes, being the 
the CEO of an organization is a very, very different role than any other role. And I've held basically every other role within the organization. And so your job is to be a visionary and it's to support your team, but not to micromanage, not to get in the weeds. And that's that has been hard for me because I was in the weeds, right? And and you know, in the CEO the COO role, sometimes I had to make those tough decisions about hiring and firing and 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 I have I can have an aggressive personality. I think you are I'm a lawyer. You are a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge cheerleader of people, but I am I don't shy away from confrontation and I am not hesitant to call a spade a spade. And so for me, actually, so my predecessor, Bob Coughlin, who's the previous CEO, he said, your biggest challenge is you're gonna have to be able to operate in gray. You know, I would operate in very black and white. And that is something that is advice he gave me. And it's he's right. Sometimes in this role, I want to tell the team something. I, I, I'd like this done this way. And I have to take a step back and say, that is not my job. My job is to lay out a vision and empower the team for make sure they have the tools and resources to succeed. And, you know, that's that's hard to get to that point. But it has also been really fun um, you know, because I'm a, I, I was a former athlete, huge team person, understand the importance of collaboration. And I think that that is something I hope that if you spoke with folks here, that's something that they would reflect as well. And so what was it like becoming the CEO and president of Maspire? What did that feel like when you'd achieved that accomplishment? It was a combination of excitement because I love this organization. At the time, I'd given this organization 14 years of my life, and I'd been responsible for building many of the programs and services that we offered. It was, and and to think that I would now have the opportunity to lead the direction of the organization into the next chapter was so exciting to me. It was also overwhelming. We do a lot as an organization, right? We are a membership organization. We have 1,600 member companies. And by virtue of that, we represent hundreds of thousands of employees, right, as part of that membership community. So we have a lot of programs and services that we run, and these companies rely on them. And, and, so, so to make sure all of that was continuing to be successful, we're also a really big policy shop. And that was the only hat I had never worn. I wasn't a former politician and I wasn't a lobbyist. And so the thought of having to learn the nuance of what we were doing on a state policy front and what was happening on a federal policy front was daunting. The other piece to think that, okay, I'm, I'm very social. I love people. I love building relationships. And I knew how to run the business, but I had never been a figurehead. And so to think about taking on that role was really scary, too, to think about doing all of these media interviews and to have my face 
in the paper. I didn't have to do that before. So there were these things that would keep me up at night. But as an adult, and you can probably relate to this, right? There's only, there's, you don't have that many chances to challenge yourself anymore, right? You could sort of live in this status quo, right? And be comfortable with that. But for me, it was like, I love the opportunity to continue to challenge myself. And it was in those moments of doing something I was scared to do or never thought I would do that I felt like being proud of yourself is a really good feeling. Good for you as well. And I, I couldn't agree more in terms of that kind of, uh, there's always a quote that I, you know, you know, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Like yeah. and the, the, and the more you put yourself in those environments, the more you will grow and you will, and that doesn't mean break yourself, right? That means just like stretch every so often and just continually iteratively improve. And so, yeah, I, I will. And I'm going to, I'm going to move kind of switch gears into the kind of mass, but the kind of cluster in a moment. But before I do so, I suppose, you know, a lot of our listeners are, you know, uh, people developing careers in all different types of organizations and, a lot of female listeners as well that will look at someone like you and really be in awe of of what you've achieved in and let's be honest what is typically you know still traditionally a very very male dominated environment or you at jpm last week and you know when i'm at any of the events it is better than it was 10 15 years ago or 20 years ago but it's still very male dominated so any i suppose any any tips lessons insights to share with uh or listeners that are you know either look, looking to emulate what you've done in terms of navigating a career within one organization or just be able to hold yourself and compete you know alongside a predominantly male workforce yeah i i think that my words of advice are do the work right i think if you look back at my last 15 years how did i get here I boil it down to I outworked everybody, right? I was never afraid to take on a project. And that doesn't mean I wasn't apprehensive or nervous about it, but I understood every time something came my way, it was an opportunity to continue to prove myself. Yeah, um, love that. So, yeah, so never shy away from the risk. I think that has been almost a reoccurring theme in this conversation. All the self-talk, right? The way you said that to me is like, you know, in your mind, you probably be like, God, can I do this? Like that self-talk, that self-doubt, that imposter syndrome piece, like you've not let that get in the way of actually giving things a shot. No, you've got to table that. And it doesn't mean, I told this to the team one time at our holiday party when I started, I said, I don't know if this might look easy to you because hopefully I make it look slightly more seamless than it is behind the curtain, but it isn't. And I can't do any of this without you and just know every time I get on a stage and have to talk in front of 400, 500 people, I'm scared. But put that aside because you have to believe in yourself. Take that deep breath and do it. And do it in a way that's authentic. My favorite thing to do is if I'm speaking at something and I can see the reaction on people. And I'm, I'm a little bit more chaotic. I'm a little bit more sort of outside the box than probably a lot of speakers. And that resonates with people. And there's an authenticity about it. And to your point about being a woman, I am who I am. I wear red lipstick. I wear four inch heels and I wear, you know, black pencil skirts. And 
maybe I should have changed that at different points, but I'm not going to be somebody I'm not. No, absolutely not. Like that, I, I, yeah, good on you. And I think that like one thing you really resonates with that, that do the work and it comes back to that, you know, just be so, you know, it's that classic, like be so good, you're impossible to ignore. And I think like that's, that's exactly what strikes me when I look at your journey that you have got to where you are through, you know, persistence, discipline, showing up, doing the work and being yourself and you know congratulations to you for for that and uh, and i'm really grateful that you're able to share that because i'm sure a lot of our listeners will, will be in these situations where they're struggling to navigate that next step and actually just having someone like you just uh, articulate how you got through that i think is is incredibly valuable so thank you for sharing that and and i wanted well, to thank ask you for that, saying that that's very kind thank you're you very welcome and um so we've talked about Massachusetts and what a fantastic place it is to do business. And I suppose that if I look at the, I'll give you kind of a, an anecdote of some of the conversations I've had in the last six months or even year, which are you know, clients of ours or people in the sector. Being like, you know, we we just don't want to be in Boston because or Cambridge because it's too expensive, or the talent is like too expensive, or actually setting up there is is too expensive and it's actually a crazy competitive environment so in one sense you have built the most enviable cluster on, on in the planet you know i think if i look at globally you look at maybe san francisco maybe even not san francisco but like south san francisco and maybe uh you know area san diego that compete i would say with with what you're doing but actually you guys have have managed to do something uh, you know, incredible, and mass buyers obviously played a great role in that. Do you do you get a sense of um, things are cooling off at all? And uh, what I don't want to go into at this moment because we'll pick that up is like the kind of what does the future look like for biotech? I suppose is is there a saturation point? Right? Is there a maturity point? Is there a point at which actually Massachusetts becomes untenable for many companies and they're just priced out or it's too competitive? do you come across that are you aware of that or is that just is that just a couple of a couple of disgruntled people yeah i i certainly hope that that never becomes a sentiment about massachusetts i it listen it is not cheap to do business in massachusetts and i don't think that's a secret to anybody right I, it is expensive to run a business here and and then what are our other sort of shortcomings right and, and what are some of the key questions that companies ask when they think about moving here? Well, what's your workforce like? What's your housing like? And what's your transportation like? And we don't have good answers for any of those. But what we do have is an ecosystem that if you have a company that has potential, this is the place that will support you and accelerate that potential to success, right? We call our um, our annual meeting the state of possible. And we do that because that's what Massachusetts is, right? This is where we turn impossibilities into possibilities for patients. And I think it, this was all validated most recently when Massachusetts won the Investor Hub Catalyst for RPH, right? We were competing against every major life science cluster in the country. And the reason why Massachusetts was selected is because we have every key stakeholder represented here, deeply represented here, but we also have figured out 
how to collaborate in a way that shows time and time again successful outcomes. Which which is, I, I could not agree more, I have to say, and it's great to get your perspective on that. And just as you were talking that, I was kind of sitting here reflecting on, you know, my three years or so living in that part of the world. And, you know, we talked about the energy before. <laughs> it, it always struck me as like, I wanted to be better. I wanted to improve. And in, in the time, you know, I was in Massachusetts, I started Molecule to Market, right? This podcast started in my apartment in J- Jamaica Plain. I wrote a book in that time. I started my second company in that time. My first company grew threefold in, or fi- fi- fivefold, in fact, in the time we were we started that bu- that business in in headquartered in in Massachusetts. So I I could not agree more in terms of that acceleration piece. And I think that energy acceleration ecosystem like combined is incredibly powerful. And I think for companies that are willing to take the risk and you know invest and really go for it, they will succeed uh, by doing the work. Back to what you you said before. So I think it's great to get your insight and it's only backed up by by my experience as well and so and i suppose just off in we have a few more minutes left before we have to end this interview unfortunately because i'm sure we could keep going Gone by too fast hours. i know i know and i knew we would have a great conversation today you know many of our listeners are coming off the back of 2023 which was a very difficult yeah you know whether it's biotech companies who were struggling to get funding and the the bulk of the listeners of our podcast are actually more in the pharma services space or the biopharma services space. So these are the um, the service vendors, you know, suppliers that are supporting the drug development ecosystem. So you know, contract manufacturers and contract research companies and clinical research and everything in between. You know, the thermos and everything down similar to thermos. That's that's a lot of our listeners, and I suppose the impact of the biotech kind of capital slow down the big changes in big pharma you then throw in all the macro issues it's been a very tough year in 2023 for the entire industry so that's what's coming off the back of jp morgan when we're recording this podcast talk to us about your outlook for the next year and in, in 18 months and you know what what kind of sentiment are you guys articulating uh, you know what does your crystal ball say you know in terms of what the next year or two are, are going to look like and, and how you see that Expose impacting the 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 broader life science space. Yeah, so I was out at J.P. Morgan last week, and I had you know feelings about the conference, and I've now talked with a lot of my colleagues who were also out there, and I think the sentiment leaving is optimistic. I think it's cautiously optimistic. I think that you know last year particularly at J.P. Morgan, there were there were so many out no, unknowns and there's a lot of apprehension. When you reflect back on the year by the numbers, at least in Massachusetts, it actually was a pretty good year, which probably a lot of people don't say. But it was close. You know, Massachusetts headquarter companies received close to $7.8 billion of BC investment, and that went to 221 companies, right? And towards the end of the year, we were seeing some M&A activity happening. We had two IPOs out of Massachusetts. So a little bit of movement. I think that, so going into JP Morgan, there was some optimism. Coming out of it, I think even more optimism. We saw some good M&A activity announced, um, 
tons of partnering meetings. Everyone I talked to said it was like nothing they've seen in the last few years. And I think the takeaway is good science will continue to be funded. Investors, I think, are still cautious, but they're looking for good clinical data. And if companies have that, they will receive funding. We're hoping the IPO market will continue to open up a little bit more and then that cycle can get moving again, right? Those later stage companies can get those rounds. They need to go to, you know, IPO or or to have a deal. And those early stage companies will then continue to get that funding, right? And the cycle, the wheels gets moving. So I feel really good about that. I think A key takeaway from Massachusetts is this is where we do some of the most innovative research and development anywhere on the planet. And last year, one of the greatest wins for us as a cluster was what happened with sickle cell and the um, approval from Vertex and CRISPR. And that's the Massachusetts story, right? Those are Massachusetts homegrown companies coming up with a therapy for a patient population that had nothing else. And here in Massachusetts, I know that these companies are con- continuing to commit to bringing those type of innovative, innovative solutions to patients, particularly patient populations that have no other hope. Yeah, that's great. And what a, I think I think that's a great sentiment to end the interview. Actually, some you know optimism for the year ahead, and actually bringing it back to the patient and the the power of i suppose collaboration within an ecosystem and the the outcome of that and it, it is interesting what you said you know i, I did read the report the uh, and i encourage our listener the, the massachusetts bio uh, pharma funding and pipeline report and it it really if you read it actually it doesn't make it sound like it was a bad year at all actually it was quite and so um i think you know if we if that trajectory continues towards the back end of last year and into the year ahead then I'm hoping it could be a great year for not just Massachusetts, but the life science sector on a whole. It is an election year, of course, in the US, which tends to be a bit of of an unknown quantity in terms of how that rocks the boat or doesn't. But um, Kendall, what what an absolute pleasure it's been to have you on the show. We appreciate how busy you are and, uh, you know, you are a figurehead for one of the biggest clusters in the world. So uh, as I said at the start, you know, we feel very privileged that you have taken the time to be a guest on Molecule to Market. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wicked fun, right? A Boston <laughs> drop for you. And I really appreciate all the work you're doing to showcase um, the innovation within our ecosystem and really around the globe. So thank you for your commitment to showcasing um, the life sciences. Wow. How about that? Kendall Berlin O'Connell, who is the CEO and president of MassBio. What an absolute whirlwind uh, of energy and positivism and what a great, great story uh, that was. I'm really, really glad Kendall made the time to come on uh, the podcast and share her story and kind of go give you guys a bit more insight into the kind of power of Massachusetts and how MassBio came to be. Um, And yeah, as I reflect on today's kind of conversation, I think I think it's just fascinating to know where uh, kind of where it all began in terms of Massachusetts and in particular Boston and Cambridge becoming uh, you know one of the leading if not the leading biocluster in the world and 
just why that ecosystem has such energy. I think at a personal level, I really enjoyed hearing how her non-linear journey in the mass bio, some of the challenges that she had and her you know, decisions to ruffle feathers and, uh, you know, and, and try and make an impact in the nicest possible way ultimately led her to the position that she has today. I think within that, there's some phenomenal lessons for young leaders all over the industry. And, you know, for, for me, I, I love the kind of vulnerability piece as well, where she talked about kind of dealing with her inner voice and really just, you know, believing in herself and giving it a go, which I think is great for many of us to hear that someone in her position also has that kind of same self-doubt from time to time, but she's overcome it with just simply working really, really hard and being very, very good at what she did, at what she does. And it's a real uh, optimistic positivism, I think, as well for 2024 and ahead, uh, you know, speaking to Kendall kind of off record and talking about her experience at uh, JP Morgan and the events that they have at Mass Bio, they're getting, you know, real sense of optimism for the year ahead. And in particular, she talked to obviously the region, Massachusetts, and the success and how that really, really punches well above uh, itself. So, yeah, what a, what a terrific guest. And I really hope you, you know, gain great amounts of insight and just some good lessons and just some entertainment uh, from that episode today. Uh, thanks to my team, as always, for creating all the work that goes into putting these podcasts together. Um, if you liked today's episode, which I'm sure, I'm sure you did, then just give us a nice little like wherever you're listening, whatever platform, whether it's Spotify, Apple, just give us five stars and maybe even leave a kind comment. If you've got any other guest recommendations or anyone that you want us to interview, then please let us know. Uh, in the meantime, you take good care of yourself and from a very, very chilly Toronto, stay warm. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website, uh, Molecule to Market Pod, or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecule to Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.